You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one of those in front of you. You can find Revelation 2 on page 1029. And we we move from chapter 1 to chapter 2, but I want us to linger very quickly in the end of chapter 1. Remember the Apostle John who's writing this book of Revelation had heard this thunderous voice and he turned to see Jesus, the one that he had spent three years here on earth with. And he tried to explain and describe who this Jesus was. And what he chose to do is go back to the Old Testament with so many references to the Old Testament to show that this Jesus that was speaking to him was the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies and that he himself is God himself And this moment just left John, as it were, dead. And he feared the Lord Jesus and fell at his feet. And Jesus said to him, Oh, John, worship is not intended to be static and motionless. Worship is intended to be expressed in obedience. Write to seven churches the letters that I have for them. And that's what we will be studying in chapters two and three. I'll ask the team to put a map up on the screen just to give us a little bit of geographical recalibration. The seven churches that we study in chapters two and three are in modern day Turkey, what the Roman Empire would have referred to as Asia Minor. And a couple things I want you to see in this map, first of all, is that these are seven literal historic churches. These were seven important centers of trade routes and expansion of the gospel. And so Jesus had a a, a historical purpose to identifying these seven churches to receive not only the individual letters, but the entire book of Revelation. But I also want you to see that there are actually seven churches. And in the Bible, the number seven is important. It describes fulfillment or completion, and we learned over the last two weeks that we can say with a high level of confidence that this is designed by God to cause us to remember that while there are historical churches with historical context to which these chapters address, this is also for all churches of all generations, including us here at Ascend. And so the exercise, I want to make sure that we follow over the next two weeks is that we first of all understand the historical context. That's how we should study the Bible. We should study the Bible not with asking the questions about what does it say to me or how does it apply to me first. We should ask the question what did it mean to them first. Let us understand that and then we can apply it to our context. And so that exercise will be on display in the titles of these sermons. This one identifies the first church as a hard-working church. Maybe you have people in your life that as soon as you mention their name or as soon as you see a picture of them in your mind, you immediately think these are hard-working people. I look out on this congregation and I see a lot of those faces. But I want to remind us initially and then by unpacking this passage that hardworking people often have blind spots. Hardworking churches often have blind spots. And we have the opportunity this morning through the example of Ephesus to evaluate the question, is this us? 
Look at the big idea in your notes. Don't let the hard work of the local church shift our focus off the treasure of the gospel. Let me read the passage and then we will dissect it. Verse 1, Revelation chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Four reminders through the study of this letter to the Ephesians that will give us an opportunity to evaluate, is this us? Number one, don't forget, the Lord knows. We've got to do a little gap crossing as 21st century Americans that when this letter was written to a specific historical church, we need to bridge the gap to understand what was Ephesus and what was the church. It says in verse one, this was a letter written to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a massive city by ancient standards. In fact, historians tell us that it was number eight in the list of largest cities in the Roman Empire. It had a population of about 250,000, which is about where San Diego sits in terms of being eight in the top 10 cities in the United States. It had a harbor that was very important for not just Ephesus, but also Asia Minor, and also for all of the Roman Empire, because ships would land there and then hit highways and go out through Asia, and then commerce would actually come to the harbors and then be able to spread throughout the Roman Empire. Ephesus was an interesting place. In fact, one document that I read, and this is fascinating to me, said that Ephesus had a 33% infant mortality rate. Meaning one in every three infants died. But what was very interesting is about the time that a child was five, that mortality rate increased to 50%. So one out of every two five-year-olds died. So how did this city thrive? Well, it thrived through immigrants. So there were a lot of different ethnicities, a lot of different backgrounds, and they would all come to Ephesus and they would unify around the worship of God's. In fact, you can write down Acts chapter 19. When Paul and his missionary team came to Ephesus, they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and it whipped up the entire city into a riot. And so they brought the missionary team into the stadium there and there were thousands of people yelling out their their dedication to Artemis, the fertility god. And that Artemis god was actually the, the reason why they were known 
They had built a temple to Artemis. It was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. People rallied around their identity of worshiping Artemis. But as time went on, the Roman Empire began to worship the emperors. And so the cities would build these temples to the emperors to worship them. And the emperor, if they liked the size or they liked the quality of the architecture, would then assign that city with the temple guardian designation. As we'll see in a couple weeks, Ephesus' rival city was Pergamum. Pergamon had the claim of being the temple warden to the worship of Augustus. But Ephesus came along and said, no, 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 we're going to build an even better temple to Domitian, most likely the emperor at the time of Revelation. And so they got temple warden status. And you'll see it goes back and forth, back and forth. But the identity of Ephesus was, we are known as the temple guardian of Artemis and the emperor. Now, why is that important? Because imagine, if you will, if that is your social and civic identity, like I see out there some jerseys of a football team that will play this afternoon. Isn't it interesting as Chiefs fans that it doesn't matter what economic background we are, what education background we are, or what ethnicity, if we're all wearing a Patrick Mahomes jersey, we thumbs up one another. Well, well, imagine then if you are part of a religion in Ephesus that preaches you can only worship one God, and that God is the God of Scripture, and to worship anyone else or anything else is actually sin. Imagine the impact that would have on you. As we look at history, we can see that part of their identity was that they would, they would hold up statues of Artemis. They would display that they were followers of Artemis, that they were followers of the emperor, maybe like a Heil Domitian. So again, if you are a Christian trying to function in this society and you refuse to give the Heil, you refuse to have the a temple or the Artemis statues, you will be noticed, won't you? And that will impact your ability to function in society. Almost sounds like a mark, doesn't it? We'll get there in chapters down the road. But this is the context in Ephesus. As a Christian in Ephesus, you had this against you. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, I know. He knows. You know, growing up, I was given the opportunity because I was the oldest to be in charge of watching my brother and sister when my parents were away. Inevitably, something would happen. Never my fault, of course, (laughs) but usually something was broken or somebody was crying when my parents came home and they would do what the judicious parents would typically do and they would say, okay, younger brother or sister, tell your story first. So unfair. And so what I would do is I would have in my mind, oh, if you only knew, if you just would know what happened, I would be absolved. Usually it was my fault, and I was glad that my parents didn't know, although they were pretty discerning. They're here, so I have to say that. (laughs) But how does Jesus, with authority, declare that he knows? Well, it's actually here in the text. Remember, we study the word to have the authority found in it, not in the preacher. 
So let me show you in the word where we can see how Jesus knows. The first clue is in the phrase church in Ephesus. Do you see it in the text? As we study history and as we look at the rest of the New Testament, the church in these early days was usually identified by the houses where they worshiped. It wasn't like us where hundreds of people can come into a building and all join and worship together or mega churches in our community where thousands of people can come in and worship together. And so there would be these spots throughout this 250,000 person city where churches in Ephesus would exist. So how would you know that you were a member of the church in Ephesus? Well, the term church actually reveals that. The term church was used in Greek culture even before Christians started using it as a definition I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. It was an assembly of persons constituted by well-defined membership. This was usually on display with the Greek city-states. So in order for you to be the church of Olathe as a Greek city-states, there were steps and a process for you to follow to be a member. That's one of the reasons why we at Ascend say that membership is a New Testament concept. This idea of being a church is that you have followed a clear path to constitute yourself an actual member of a local church. But that's what we do here, and I hope you'll sign up for the foundations class because part of your process of membership is we want to be able to, as elders say, as best as we can tell, we affirm you're a follower of Jesus Christ. That's important. That was present in the New Testament church. The New Testament church never thought of Christianity as an individual concept. It was always an individual within a community concept. And so this idea of church would have been that these Christians had gone through a process that officially recognized them as members of the Ephesian church. But the second concept here that I want you to see is the words of him, verse 1, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands in the middle. Remember, Jesus had revealed to John in verse 20 that the lampstands are the church. And so what this is symbolically demonstrating is that Jesus omnisciently and sovereignly knows what's going on in the churches. That should both encourage us and cause us to stir. But then it says, verse 1, he's writing to the angel in the church of Ephesus. Now a lot of ink has been spilled trying to figure out who this individual is. And I have to tell you that I'm still not dogmatic on this, but I'll tell you what I don't think it is first, and then what I do think it is. What I don't think is that this is writing to a representative human or a pastor of the church of Ephesus. The word angel is used in the New Testament elsewhere to describe human messengers, but if you look at how John uses it in the entire book of Revelation, you begin to realize John never uses the term angel as a human messenger. Also, you can see how Jesus is using symbolism, saying that he holds the angels in his hand, describing that angels are messengers that come to the earth, that are getting information and are bringing that information back to Jesus. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, remember, church in Ephesus, there are angels who are divine beings, not limited to physical limitations like humans are, that know intimately what's going on, not only in your hearts, but in your church. Wow. 
And I think we can conclude the same is true about Ascend Church. So friends, let us remember this with great awe, with great encouragement, but also with great awareness. Don't forget the Lord knows. Number two, don't stop the labor exhausts. Don't stop the labor exhausts. You know, living as a human being on this earth in this day is hard. Can we at least get an amen on that? I mean, I don't even need to go down the rabbit trail of all of the different forces in our culture today that are hard, just as a human being. But then you add to that living as a Christian in our culture. I mean, I've got to make disciples of others. I've got to actually deny self, lusts, and pride. I've got to actually live for King Jesus, not for King Jeff. I've actually got to repent of sin. I've actually got to cultivate spiritual disciplines. I've got to show evidence of patterns of fruit that I'm truly a follower of Jesus Christ. And all of the forces of the world system that is saying, don't do that. Live for self. Live for autonomy. Love whoever you want to love. That, that's hard. But then add on top of that, living in the context of a local church, which is what the New Testament expects. I mean, it's enough, and it's challenging for us to live as individual Christians, but then to do that in a room where we all come from different backgrounds, where we all wouldn't necessarily choose to worship and serve next to each other, where we're supposed to take our talents and our gifts and apply them in the context of the local church, we're actually supposed to give of our tithes and offerings, we're actually supposed to invest in helping others grow more like Christ, which means calling out sin, and which means owning sin in our own lives, and man, that's hard. Jesus knows. And it says in verse 2, I know your works. Would you underline the word works? This is the same term that is found in Ephesians 2.10. And listen, we love Ephesians 2.8 and 9, don't we? For by grace you are saved through faith. And that's not your own. It's a gift of God. It's not of works so that no one can boast. We, we love that, but we often don't focus on verse 10. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for what? For works, and it's hard. He's actually designed us and transformed us to work. And Jesus says, I know it's work, and I know your toil. The word toil means to labor with unusually difficult circumstances. And that reveals that Jesus knows about the context of Ephesus. He knows about the context of Ascend Church. He knows what's going on in your individual lives. He knows what's going on in your classes and in your workplace and in your neighborhoods and in your country. He knows and he knows it's toil, it's hard. And he said for Ephesus, you patiently endure. He says this twice, isn't that interesting? You can write down chapter one and verse nine. Remember John identified himself in those words that he puts together. He says, I'm your brother and partner. He says, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, one of the ways you evidence that is that no matter what happens in your life, the pattern is you patiently endure. And that's one thing when the attacks are coming from the outside and when the evil versus righteousness is pretty obvious, but it's another thing when you... See that in the church. Look at what it says. You cannot bear with those who are evil and claim to be apostles. 
Apostles were extremely important in the first century church because the New Testament hadn't been completed. So in order to understand what God wanted and he demands of the New Testament church, the apostles would come based on the authority that Jesus had given them and actually teach authoritatively. So for somebody to come and say they were an apostle would immediately be a challenge. And what it says is is that Ephesus tested. Do you see it in the text? To test something means an extended evaluation and analysis. They tested. Testing takes time. Testing takes work. Testing requires awkward conversations. But they did it. And they revealed that these professing apostles were false. Then go down to verse 6, would you? It says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. We don't have a whole lot of information on the Nicolaitans. We'll see them again in chapter 2 and verse 15. But as we look at the few bits of information that we have, what we can conclude is that Nicolaus was an individual in this church who actually used Scripture to promote worldly values. This was an individual who would use Scripture somehow to actually say it was okay for Christians to interact with the temple prostitutes of Artemis. It was okay for Christians to not speak up about their love for Christ and the testimony of the gospel in the marketplace. It was okay for Christians to actually go out with their friends and get a little tipsy in their alcohol consummation, and now you're beginning to see how this can get practical. Friends, this happens in churches, and it needs to be exposed. This is happening today with Adam Hamilton in the Church of the Resurrection. And you see this with the signs that are popping up in our community. Be kind, be humble, be just. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you watch the commercials and you hear what is said, if you watch his messages where he talks about how he defines kind and just and humble, you realize he's bastardizing Scripture. Yes, it says Micah 6.8, but how he would define kind, humble, and just is not how the Bible defines it. One of the kindest things that you can do is call out sin in someone else's life. The measure of justice is not wokeness, it's scripture. Being humble, though, is addressing this in a way that honors Christ. That's where we could grow. That's where we need to do some self-reflection. The way that you respond to Adam Hamilton and his false gospel is not to raise your voice and have your veins pop out. It's not to go outside of scripture and be rude to people. It's not to take those signs and rip them up. It's to as best as you can. And when God gives you outlets to be able to as creatively as possible point people to Christ, listen, our approach to truth is not to win. Our approach is to exalt Christ. And what we must do is that when a church defines biblical terms with woke definitions, we need to call it out. We need to hate it. The Ephesians did that. And it says the Lord hated it. 
Now what's interesting is verse 3 says, I know you are enduring patiently and you're bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. I love that. The word that is translated grow weary means to become emotionally fatigued and discouraged. We have a lot of emotionally fatigued people here today. From time to time, I can be one of them. But I think we would do well by following the example of the Ephesians by recognizing that emotion does not drive the train, Scripture does. See, we live in a day where emotions are something that are talked about, that are on display on a daily basis, and emotions are part of our created design, but they are never to drive the train. Scripture is. That's what the Ephesians did. So as they processed the Nicolaitans and as they experienced emotions, they ran them through the grid of Scripture. They used Scripture as their standard. Their justice was defined by Scripture. Not a verse here and there, not only the ones that are read in the Gospels, but all Genesis to Revelation that takes work. It takes time. It takes counsel. It takes equipping. It takes training up. It takes humility. And the Ephesian church was doing that, both in societal attacks as well as attacks within the church. And what Jesus is saying in these opening words of his letter to the Ephesians is, don't stop, I know labor exhausts. But then there's verse four, because don't we expect this to be the end of the letter? I mean, this is an amazing church. It, it's hardworking, it is truth-centered. It exposes air inside of the church. But then there's a word that in the English just looks like just another conjunction. It's but, but in the Greek, this would have been warning, warning, warning. You see, in the original language, there are two primary words that are translated but in the English. The one is a slight contrast. The other one is an emphatic contrast that's what this one is so here jesus has just been singing the praises of ephesus and then it's almost as if he slams the pulpit i've done that enough my hand is starting to get hurting <laughs> he says but i have this against you and literally the word order brings your first love to the forefront, which emphasizes it. And literally it says your first love you have abandoned. What does he mean? Well, there's a lot of great commentaries. There's a lot of great preaching out there that highlights the gist of this. But what I want to do is try to unpack it the way that the Ephesians would have heard it and then apply it in the way that we have probably heard it so often. Jesus says to the Ephesians, you've abandoned your first love. How did he tell? Well, you can actually see it in the warnings of verse 5. He says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Remember, we study Scripture in the context of Scripture. We study it first by looking at it in light of the whole. We look at it by looking at the, the rest of the progress of Revelation. And when we do, we also can recognize what Jesus is saying here. Write down Matthew 24, 12 through 14. 
Matthew 24, 12 through 14, Jesus on his Olivet Discourse is explaining to his disciples there will be a day as time progresses, as the end draws near, when professing Christians will give up their witness and their lamp will be removed. And so what we can see from this is that the way that Jesus could tell they were abandoning their first love is that they were not being as open and public in their witness as they had been. Now, of course, the low-hanging illustration is marriage, right? We've heard this before, that, you know, when you said, I do, remember all of those feelings that you had, and as time goes on, those feelings fade, and, and there's validity to that, but unfortunately, you hear stories of people who, when they said, I do, they were just basically trying to check a box. They didn't have that feeling. So I want to draw us back further. Remember when you were in elementary and you realized that girls didn't have cooties? <laughs> Remember like the day before you had been like, crossing your fingers, like going in and washing your hands if you accidentally brushed up against a girl and the next day you're like, oh. <laughs> and all of a sudden your parents hear a girl's name over and over and over again. And you actually pick them for your kickball team even though they're horrible <laughs> remember how you felt back then and that feeling actually motivated you you sacrificed you talked about them that's what Jesus is drawing out from the Ephesians is he's saying listen over time this love can fade in fact here's a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen hard work can be one of the most subtle faders of first love that's true, isn't it? Man, you get married and you are so excited about being married. In fact, you take pictures on Instagram like this. Like showing your ring. I, I, I tell you, I can joke about that now, but I see that now, like these engagement pictures, like the <laughs> girl is like this. It's, you all know it's true. But well, why is she doing that? Because she's excited. It's first love. But then the bills start coming in. Then your husband actually starts smelling and leaving the toilet seat up. <laughs> and we could go on and on and on. And before you know it, the hard work of life and marriage causes love to fade. Add kids to the equation. Add jobs that continue to demand more of your time. And you see that you've all probably either seen this or possibly experienced it. What Jesus is saying is, look, there are a lot of good things going on in the church in Ephesus. A lot of things that other churches are not doing. Y'all are working hard. But by the evidence of your flickering light of witness, there's a trajectory here. And so how does that apply to us at Ascend? Well, there's an individual application as well as a church-wide application. The first one is for you to evaluate how is your love for Christ motivating you? That's what this is all about. 
And that, what is the evidence of that? If you say, well, I am motivated by the love of Christ, well, what's your evidence of that? Is, is that what got you here this morning? Is that what gets you to a place where you serve in kids' ministry, where you're willing to use the skills that God's given you and, and being able to sing or play an instrument here on stage? Is that where you're willing to get here early? Or maybe as the parking lot starts to get uh, constructed, that you actually are willing to park a long ways away? What is motivating you when it comes to your walk with Christ? Is it love for Christ? Jesus is reminding the Ephesians, don't coast. Even in our hard work, we can get coasting by forgetting the motivation of our love for Christ, but we need more, don't we? Which brings me to number four. Do remember the gospel miracle. Do remember the gospel miracle. What is it, Jesus, that a church like Ephesus, I mean, if any church can lose its first love, we all would do well to follow the warning and understand the solution. Which, by the way, one of the best ways you can tell if the miracle of the gospel has transformed you is how you respond to God's warning. That's why God's word gives warning. I mean, when we look at the prophets, that's why the prophets are so ominous in their warnings. That's why the New Testament gives such strong language. Look at Hebrews 6. That's such a difficult passage. It's impossible for the one who has tasted the Holy Spirit to walk away and then be able to come back to Christ. Why is that warning so ominous? Because it's not so much the details of the warning as much as it is how do you respond? One of the best ways you can tell whether the miracle of the gospel has transformed you is the way that you respond to God's warning. And he gives them a strong warning here. Look at verse 5. I will come to you and remove your lampstand. I'll remove your witness. I'll remove the evidence that you were ever there in the first place. That's a strong warning. It's becoming more personal as I get older with the Sin Church. You know, in those early days, you're looking at your church and you're just praying, God, please move somebody to show up on a Sunday. And then people do start showing up, and then more people come, and then God brings you leaders and brings people who are are innovative and creative and and talented and gifted in ways I could never even dream about. And and the gospel bears fruit, and people keep coming, and we have to ask people to move in and leave no seat behind, and you're getting excited about this, but then you, you are reminded that this isn't about us. It's not about me. It's not even about our generation. It's about whether God will give us a window from heaven to be able to look down on this place and this group and see, is Ascend Church continuing generations from now to exalt Christ and make disciples? Pray that it is. Jesus is giving that ominous warning to say, listen, if you are not repenting, I will come and I will remove your lampstand. What are they to remember? Verse 5, remember from where you have fallen. This is interesting. The word remember means to recall something you had previously known. That, That concept is important because it draws our attention to what Jesus is using as the solution to not abandon your first look. What did you know previously that you had forgotten? And that is the miracle of the gospel. 
Here's something I would encourage you to just observe. If you want, you can write it down. It is significant that your standard is not how much you've done, but instead your complete inability to do anything on your own. And friend, the the longer we get when it comes to our Christian faith, the more tempting this is. When the question is asked about the health of your walk with Christ and your immediate response is, well, I've read through the Bible 20 times. Or look, I serve in kids ministry. Or look at how many church services I attended last year. Or look at how much money I give to the church. If that is where your answer lies, then you might be in the trajectory of Ephesus. If the answer to your health is you know you are desperate for the gospel. If the answer is I cannot do anything of spiritual value except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then it is the wrong answer. The temptation, here's another quote. For everyone, the farther you get from the conversion is the loss of memory of the radical. I had a, a pastor friend who we would talk about testimonies. And you, you know, if you've grown up in church world, you know the testimonies can almost be embarrassing. Because you're like, oh man, I didn't do anything raunchy. <laughs> my pastor friend would be like, yeah, my testimony's radical. It's radical. That's kind of his voice too. And so we're like, okay, tell us about your radical testimony. And it was pretty radical. <laughs> From a horizontal definition. You know those certain activities as Christians, like we don't even talk about. He had done all of them. And so from a horizontal standpoint, it was a radical testimony. But let me encourage you to write this down. Every testimony is radical. Every testimony is radical when you define things biblically. God says that there is no one righteous, not even one. In fact, a few phrases later, he says, no one seeks after God. You know that whole movement in the 80s and 90s that continues today about being seeker churches? No one seeks God on their own. So to adjust the approach that we have for church to make sinners feel more comfortable is a heretical approach to church. How we should approach church is put Christ as vividly and clearly on display because if the Holy Spirit is drawing someone, that's what we want to attract them to, not secular music played to make people feel comfortable. It's important for us to remember that none of us would seek after God. In fact, Ephesians 2 says we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. We are incapable of faith. Do you realize the New Testament tells us that faith is a gift? Do you realize that God grants us repentance before we can even repent? Do you realize the Bible talks about conversion of God replacing our hearts of stone with our hearts of flesh? That God reveals that he brings our blind eyes sight. It is the work of God and he predestined us before the foundations of the world. This is awesome. It's radical. But we forget that, don't we? Jesus cares very deeply that we don't forget. Verse 5, he uses the term repent twice. Now, the word repent has been misunderstood 
in our English context. The word repent usually focuses on sorrow, doesn't it? That as long as someone has tears, as long as they say sorrowful words, then we say, well, they've repented. As parents, have you ever seen this? When you tell your child, tell your sister they're sorry. Not that this ever happened in our family. And they fold their arms, and they have their scratched face, and they say, sorry. <laughs> and usually parents want to get back to the bubbling pot on the oven, or the dad wants to get back to the ball game, and they're like, great, repented, mic drop. It's not repentance. The definition is already up on the screen, but, or at least the quote. And that is that in English, the focal component is sorrow because of sin, but the biblical emphasis is on total change, both in thought and behavior. That's the biblical concept. Listen, do you know that true biblical repentance is not measured by tears or words, but patterns of change? That's important. Just because there's tears, just because there's ownership, does not mean it is biblical repentance. It might mean you're on the path to biblical repentance, but true biblical repentance is recognized by changes and patterns. And so Jesus says twice, repent. Repent, remember how far you have fallen and return to the works you did at first. Not the quantity of works, but the motivation of your works. That's the difference. Not the quantity of your works. That's the horizontal way of looking at things. And maybe God's given you capacity. Maybe you have a season of life. Maybe God's given you skills that you actually should be doing more quantity. But the measurement of God's perspective is not how much we do, but what motivates us. And what should motivate us is the love of God. So what should the church of Ephesians do? What should we do if any of this convicts any of us individually or as a church? Verse 7. He who has an ear, or she who has an ear, let them hear. The word is akua, which means to listen with the expectation of responding appropriately what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We don't have time to dig into this. We will as Revelation unfolds, but this is actually drawing our attention to the completion of God's plan that started in the garden. God's plan in the garden was to provide a tree of life that would sustain life, that would continue life. But because of Adam and Eve's sin, that, that, that tree was actually protected from sinful humanity. But it will be here again. And it will be in the new Jerusalem. Revelation 22 tells us, I can't wait for that day when God will bring all of the corruption, all of the brokenness to reconciliation. And so the one who is evaluating their hard work to see, is there any blind spot of abandoning their first love and conquers that will authenticate that they're saved. Now this word conquer is awesome. It's actually the word nikao from which we get the, the brand name Nike. And I wish we had more time to dig into this, but I would just encourage you to write down John 16, 33. This is where the original language is so valuable. Jesus says, take heart, I have conquered, nikao, the world. 
I've conquered the world system. I've conquered sin. But the tense in the original language is it's complete. The tense in this passage of Revelation is it's ongoing. That's pretty cool. Or at least I think it is. Here's one last quote. When we have embraced the complete victory of Christ, we are empowered to gain gospel victories in every battle of this life, confirming the gospel miracle has changed us. And that's the Christian life, isn't it? Christ has Nike'd the world and sin completed. But for us, it's an ongoing battle. But if we have been transformed by the Nike of Jesus, then we have the opportunity to continually just do it. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? We are a hardworking church. That much is true. A lot of you are characterized by in your individual lives hard work in your Christian life. But there's an opportunity that all of us have this morning, and that is to learn from the letter to the Ephesians and to evaluate our lives to see what motivates our hard work. It's an opportunity as well to evaluate whether or not you are actually being drawn by the Holy Spirit. If you are here this morning and you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, You've never acknowledged and owned that he is holy, that you are a sinner through and through. It's not what you've done, it's who you are, and that you are destined rightfully so to an eternity in hell because of God's wrath. But God has made a way and he has provided a solution and that solution is his son. And because of his life, death, and resurrection and his place of Nike victory at the right hand of God, you can be saved, but you must respond. And maybe right now you're at a place where the Holy Spirit is telling you, now is the time. Would you respond? Would you commit your life to Christ and ask him to forgive you? Friend, you can talk to one of these prayer partner team team members at the ends of the stage. They would love to help you with next steps. And then, friend, if you have been saved, what can you grab from this letter to the Ephesians, this historical ancient church, and actually use it to invite the Holy Spirit to recalibrate you back to your first love. Every one of us has an opportunity to respond. Take this time of prayer and this time of singing to act on that this morning.